One of the things I love about retreat season is the drive up to camp. Normally what we do is we send a team up early, we call it the advanced team, and, and we go and we get everything all set up. And when I'm able, I really love to drive up alone. It gives me a chance to clear my head. It gives me a chance to focus my thoughts. It helps me to center myself before all the craziness begins. And, and there's a peace that comes from just getting away from the office, getting out of town, and driving up to camp alone on a nice, long country drive. As I was preparing for this series, I came across the true story of a pastor who had a very different experience. Her husband's a pastor too. He's a covenant pastor. And their family was heading up to camp to get away. It may have actually been the same camp that we go to, the one we were just at last couple weekends. Well, her family needed to drive up separately. And her husband and the boys, they left early and she drove up alone. Now, as a black woman, her experience was very, very different. She had a lot of anxiety actually going up. Well, she needed to pick up something for supper. And so she pulls into this small town. And when she pulled up, she noticed off to the side at the intersection, there was a big pickup truck. And in this pickup truck, there were three men. But what caught her attention the most was what was in the bed of that pickup truck. It was the biggest Confederate flag that she had ever seen. Well, this had her attention and, and she was very strategic in, in how she turned and how she drove. And she noticed that truck got right in behind her and it mirrored her every move all the way into a grocery store. And when she pulled into the lot in that grocery store, they pulled in right behind her, boxing her in. Can you imagine that? What that would feel like? Well, she, she did a lot of strategic thinking and as she got out of the car and was making herself you know, really quickly towards the door of the, of the grocery store, all of a sudden they let out a laugh, one of those laughs that was very unsettling, and they revved the engine and they sped off, and they sped off in the direction where she was going to have to travel all alone up to camp on an isolated road. Now this is possibly the same camp that many of us were just at. This may have been the same route that many of us took. Many of us may have driven right through that town, maybe stopped at those same places, and her experience, again, as a black woman, was very different than my experience as a white man. My brothers and sisters, this should not be so. All right. Let's have that conversation about race that we've been talking about. And let's start right here. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. Racial discrimination and disparities are all around us. And, and these two facts are indisputable. Racial discrimination exists. There's examples all around us. People are told, you don't belong here just because of the color of their skin. Racial disparities exist. There's examples all around us. There are big differences along racial lines when it comes to education and income and employment and criminal conviction, incarceration rates, violence, crime, marriage, family. The word says, if one part suffers, the whole body suffers. So let's go there together. Let's have a conversation about race.
And right now, if your defenses are coming up, I don't blame you. I don't blame you a bit. If your anxiety level is climbing, I don't blame you. I don't blame you a bit because rarely anymore can we actually have a conversation. Rarely anymore can we actually be in a situation where people are listening to one another rather than shouting and arguing. The conversations about race are rarely conversations. Can I get an amen? There's a lot of arguing. There's a lot of shouting down. There's not a lot of listening to understand. There's not a lot of collaboration with others who see things differently. The fact that racial discrimination disparities exist, that is indisputable. Why they exist, what we should do about it, that's normally where the conversation ends and the arguments begin. And there's not one voice, is there? that has the answers. There's not one voice that speaks for all people. There's not one voice that speaks for all persons of color. There's not one voice that speaks for all black, the, the entire black community or the Asian community or Latinos or indigenous people groups or any of the beautiful skin tones that we see in our world. In fact, I was just up at a conference this last week, a conference. Uh, great job, Joel and Mindy Lawrence, by the way, with that conference. I was up there and this was a conference on race. And at this conference, one of the speakers was a 67-year-old. And he's a man, a person of color, who has seen so many things over the years. And he said this, and I quote, he said, be very thoughtful and careful about which bandwagon you jump on. I mean, there's a lot of us. We couldn't agree more. If you approach this important conversation and this important work with a humble learner's posture, the deeper that you go, the more you're going to see of this. I encourage you to write this down. The way that most people re are responding to racial discrimination and disparities are turning potential allies into adversaries. That's why we're calling this series Untrenched. Because it's as if a new civil war is being fought over why racial discrimination and disparities exist, who's to blame, what language we should use, and how we should respond. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, a house divided, it can't stand. The way that people are engaging in this important conversation and this important work is turning potential allies into adversaries. And, and you know what? Some people see that as a mark of success. At that conference that I just mentioned, I'll give you this specific example from there. I heard about at this conference an influential pastor who's white. He's got a book. He's got a big footprint online. And when he was asked, what would success look like in conversations like this? Here's what he said. He says, I know I'm successful when white people leave my church. Now that's a line that's going to be an applause line, depending on your crowd. But is that what the scripture calls us to? Is that what the world needs more of right now? If you have your Bible with you, please open with me to the passage we're going to focus on today. We're going to be looking at it in context here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Let me first just give you the verse. Let's talk about it. Then we're going to come back and put it in context. If you don't have a Bible at home, there's a great free app you can get. Just go to uversion.com and uh, download the app they have there. It's a, it's a great tool. All right, here we go. 2 Corinthians. I didn't say this right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
verse 8. Uh, no, 18 says this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All right, I want you to keep a bookmark here because we're going to come back to this. And we're going to look at these challenging words in context. Now, for the record, I need to make sure I'm as clear as I can on this. This reconciliation, the biblical reconciliation, it has nothing to do with eliminating tension. Did you hear that? It has nothing to do with eliminating tension. Biblical reconciliation is the work that Martin Luther King Jr. describes in his letter from the Birmingham jail, where he calls out moderates. He calls them out. He, he calls out moderates who, quote, prefer a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. In that same letter, King reminds us, groups are more immoral than individuals. This is what we're getting at here. And this is what so many of us are so concerned about these trends that we're seeing. Are you familiar with trench warfare? Trench warfare is what happens when there's two opposing sides, they clash, and one can't roll over the other. And so what do they do? They dig in, they establish battle lines, and from those trenches, they rally their troops and they fire at the other side. Isn't that what we're seeing a lot of right now? Let me give you just a few examples of these two entrenched positions and how they see things so differently. For the trench on the right, the American flag represents the greatest nation on earth. If you were born here, they might say, you hit the lottery. Two flags went to war over slavery in 1861, and it was the stars and stripes that won, they would argue. And those on the right then would ask, if America is as racist as those on the left say, why are so many people working so hard to get in here? So that's the trench on the right. The trench on the left, when it comes to the flag, might say this. They say, when we see the flag, we see a symbol of a nation that has enslaved blacks, that took away lands from indigenous peoples, that has committed untold injustices against Asians and Latino. This is a nation, they would argue, where racism is still deeply embedded in our culture. And as a nation, let's go there. The trench on the right would say, look how far we've come. The trench on the left would say, look how far we have to go. Those on the right would say, racism and justice, they are primarily individual in nature. Those on the left would say they're primarily systemic. Those on the right would say, Black Lives Matter is an organization that I can't fully align with politically and some of these other things they believe. Those on the left would say, Black Lives Matter is a way to say, I see you. I respect you. I care about you. I affirm that you bear the image of God. And if you really want to help persons of color, those on the right would say, vote Republican. Those on the left would say, vote Democrat. Pick your topic. CRT, 1619 Project, defund the police, riots, whiteness, white fragility, white privilege, white tears, wokeness, victimhood, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, say their names, Confederate monuments, education, violence, incarceration, systemic racism, tokenism, colorblindness, equivalency, Jim Crow and Uncle Tom, separation, segregation, reparations. Imagine if we could channel all of this passion, all of this thinking. Imagine if we could channel all of this into collaborative ways, 
into an effort to identify what are all of the factors out there that are contributing to discrimination, all of the factors that are contributing to disparities. What if? Any of you see that Disney Plus um, series that was on a while back, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier? In one episode, there's a superhero called the Falcon, and he confronts somebody. He confronts someone who considers herself a warrior on the side of justice. And look what he says to her. He says, I'm not your enemy. I agree with your fight. I just can't get with the way you're fighting it. Can any of you relate to that? If so... I want to invite you right here this Thursday and the next two after that. Come here for these Thursdays. We're, we're going to call it, I think it's something like, let's talk Thursdays. On Sundays, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to lay out a broad framework, the biblical framework. And then on Thursdays, this is where we can go deeper together and have a conversation. This Thursday, you'll get a chance to hear experiences from persons of color and their perspectives, people who are part of the ECC family. And we'll also discuss specifics about this table behind me and some of the resources on there, along with other video resources and things like this. We'll, we'll share some specifics about those. And best of all, perhaps um, right up there at the top of the importance here with this, we get a chance, you get a chance to speak into what are the key issues, topics, questions that could be most helpful for us to talk about over the next two Thursdays? So that is this Thursday. Then on November 4th and November 11th, I am so thankful that Hollis Kim from the Northwest Conference office is going to be coming and joining us for both of those Thursdays. He's the pastor of the pastors in our, um, in our region for the, for the covenant. And what he's going to do, he's going to provide a framework for how do you approach conversations like this as a learner rather than a judger. And what he's going to do, he's going to help us have this conversation. And in real time, he's going to be coaching us so we stay in the learner posture instead of the judger posture. posture. It's going to be so helpful, so good. So that's coming up on Thursdays. I also want to encourage you. If you're not already, sign up for the ECC mail list because there's only so much we can do on Sundays and Thursdays. And the ECC mails, the ones that, that I send out, I'm going to take time to, to address other specific things along the way, including this coming ECC mail. What I want to do in this one is I want to explain why, as a church, it's important to us to do the best we can to ensure that we're not only bringing a white perspective and we're going to share why that matters. So you can look for that this week. All right, we're going to do everything we can as part of this series to challenge and equip one another to apply 2 Corinthians 5.18. To apply it. The verse we just read about is about reconciliation. And reconciliation, at least in an authentically biblical sense, it is not something we see a lot of today. There's a whole lot of this. Hey, either you get in this trench with us or you're the enemy. And that's not authentic biblical reconciliation. In fact, as you're about to see as we dig into the text, that is the same behavior that Paul was calling out in the Corinthians 2,000 years ago. When we wage war, the way the world wages war, we don't change hearts. Can I get an amen to that? We see this in our own American Civil War. 
Racism wasn't defeated in 1865 or in 1964. It continued to take on different forms. When we wage war over definitions, as we blame others without personal reflection, as we spend more time trying to rally our troops than we do trying to understand why people don't agree with us, we only contribute to the divide. So what are we going to do? We're going to set up a table. We're going to set up a table right in the middle of no man's land. And we're going to sit down together and we're going to do the best we can to open up our Bibles together, to really listen, do our best to learn and hear and discern what it is that God has to say about these things. Well, we've got to keep Scripture at the center. We've got to. We've got to. So let's go back to our text, 2 Corinthians 5.18. And now let's put it in context. Now, here's how many Christians read this section. They just do 17, and then they jump down to 21. That's, that's often what I see emphasized from this section of Scripture. And if you just do that, it reads like this. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then they jump to 21. For our sake, he made him to be no sin who knew no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we may become the righteousness of God. Now, that's what a lot of people do. They skip what's in between. Let's not do that. Because what's the context here? And what does Paul say in between? What is the immediate implication and application for 17 and 21? Now remember, Paul's writing to real people in a real city. Corinth was one of the most culturally diverse places on the planet. Corinth was a place where people often took sides rather than listening to one another. It's a place where social status mattered and was measured. Does any of that sound familiar? How about this? Corinth was a place where people were constantly jumping on the bandwagon of new thoughts and teachings. It was a place where persuasive influencers developed loyal followers. It was a place where people who identified as Christians weren't applying biblical principles for relationships. All right, our Bible contains two letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. How many of you know 2 Corinthians wasn't Paul's second letter to them? Paul originally visited Corinth in one of his missionary journeys. And he founded a church there. You can read all about it in Acts 18. Well, sometime after Paul left, he received a report. The church was becoming divided. So Paul wrote a letter that we call 1 Corinthians to address those concerns. Well, then Paul followed up what we call 1 Corinthians with what he called a painful visit. And then he followed up that painful visit with what he called a painful letter. We don't have that painful letter. But after receiving that painful visit, painful letter, the people began to realize, at least many of them, they had been wrong. They desired to be reconciled with Paul and with God and the way of Jesus. Now, if you follow Jesus, he's going to lead you into that kind of covenant community where we seek reconciliation, where we seek to love our neighbors as ourselves. So with this context now, let's go back to this letter. And we're going to see reconciliation is a huge theme throughout the letter, and it affects what we're about to read right now. So 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, be, uh, If anyone is in Christ, let me show we read out of the text here. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, what specifically um, did, he, did, did Paul want to get at here? I love how N.T. Wright, what he has to say about this verse. He says, When a new world is born, 
a new way of living goes with it. This is true in so many stages of life. It is true when a couple have their first baby, a whole new chapter of their lives has opened and nothing will be the same again. And look at this. They have new responsibilities. Everywhere they go, they see things with new eyes. So what specifically did Paul want these people to see with their new eyes as new creations? That's what, where we go then, verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, he says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In Corinth, they were divided. In Corinth, they were choosing sides. In Corinth, some were aligning with one teacher, some were aligning with another. What did Paul say to them? He said, if we're in Christ, we've been reconciled. And Christ is entrusting us with a message of reconciliation. Not with a particular teaching or a particular teacher, but with God and with one another. Well, several weeks ago, we hosted right here. In fact, almost exactly where the camera is sitting, we hosted an event. We called it At the Table, where our teaching team had a chance to meet and sit down with persons of color right from the ECC family. And one of the things we did, we literally sat on a table. It was about 16 feet long. And some of those resources you saw in the back, we laid them out. They stretched from end to end on that table. Unfortunately, almost every one of those resources on that table are either entrenched on the right or entrenched on the left. And while each has their important points, each also, like all of us, has their blind spots. And we can't close disparity gaps if we don't address the whole totality of what's going on, the systemic and the personal responsibility aspects. If we fail to acknowledge how far we've come, we just lead, it just leads to more hopelessness. If we fail to acknowledge how far there is yet to go, we can continue to fuel apathy. What if? What if we not only affirmed, but applauded and adopted God-honoring perspectives regardless of where they came from, if they were God-honoring, wherever they could be found. Now that brings us then to verse 20. Verse 20 says this, Therefore, we are, what does it say? If you're following along, what does it say? We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to which of the teachers on those books there? No, no. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. This new world that Paul is testifying to, it has a new king. And this king has ambassadors. As we begin our conversation together, as we start this journey, will you make a commitment to be an ambassador for Christ? Rather than just simply an ambassador for one of those other voices. If you're still taking notes, I invite you to write this down. We invite you to join us in the hard and messy work of biblical reconciliation. As Christians, 
we bring to the table the greatest reconciliation resource in history. The Ten Commandments were given in a context of people who had just been delivered from 400 years of slavery. The world that Jesus stepped into was a world, and the world in which the early church was born. It is one of Roman occupation, of systemic injustice. We have passages in this resource that speak to positions of power. And we have passages that speak to those on the receiving end of oppression. We also have passages that speak to those who are complicit, who are apathetic. We have passages that speak to the importance of systems and structures. We have passages that speak to the importance of personal responsibility. Have people misused these scriptures? Absolutely. But when we hear, when we put into practice these words, the very power of Christ is at work in us. The work of reconciliation, that's his work. That's the ministries entrusted to us and will be in. Verse 21 says this. Now does this, maybe this will make even a little bit more sense in its context. He says this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what really struck me as I was studying these things um, this last week. What kind of Messiah were most people expecting in the time of Jesus? They were expecting a Messiah who would come oppressors the way the world normally does. Why did so many of the Corinthians reject Paul? For many of the same reasons they rejected Christ. Paul didn't conform to their expectations of what a Messiah, what a Savior should look like and do. Can I be candid with you right now? As I've been listening and trying to learn and sit at the feet of so many of these influencers, I've been seeing a lot of common ground between a lot of what they're doing and a lot of the behaviors Paul called out in these people that he called super apostles. And I'm noticing how many of them resemble much more closely those super apostles than they do Paul. A lot of people are really rest, resting on their titles. A lot of people are really resting in their eloquent, eloquent words. A lot of them are getting paid big money for what they're doing. What did Paul have? And what did Paul directly contrast himself with, with these people he called the super apostles? I mean, Paul had a life that looked a lot more like Jesus. The way of Jesus, the way of the cross, if you want to change hearts, this is where heart change happens in a way that words alone never will. That's one of the reasons why I put this resource in pretty much a lot of the stuff that John Perkins says. I put that in a different, different category than a number of those other resources on the table. We'll come back to him at other points along this series. He looks a lot more like Jesus, a lot more like Jesus. Friends, it's possible. It's possible to have these conversations in a helpful, productive way.
We had one right here in this room. It is possible to close disparity gaps. Why do I say that? Because many of you are doing that work. Emmanuel Children's Home is one example where we are seeing generational poverty close, come to an end. Let's actively pursue the vision that we've been given, the revelation that we find right at the end of this reconciliation resource where, where people from every tongue and tribe and nation have been reconciled with God and are honoring him together as much as it depends on us. Let's do our part to value the beauty of every skin tone and affirm the humanity and dignity of every person we lock eyes with. Join us at the table and invite others to come and join us too. Next week, we're going to look at biblical principles for difficult conversations. And our text is going to be Acts 15. In week three, we're going to discuss and engage in biblical repentance and biblical lament. And our text is going to be Nehemiah 1. In week four, we're going to discuss the principle that our words create worlds. And we're going to contrast the approach and the legacy. We're going to contrast Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. And our text that week is going to be Galatians 6. And then in week five, final week of our series, we're going to talk about next steps. Next steps for us as individuals, next step for us as a church. And our text for that is going to be Micah 6, 8, and we're going to put that right in the context of the whole book. So I'm really excited with where we're going in this series. It's going to be hard. It's going to be messy. We're going to get, oh, we're going to take fire together, church, from all sides on this. But let's do the best we can to keep walking forward. What I'd like to do today as we bring this message to a close is we want to show you a video clip, a video clip that has touched the hearts of probably millions of, of, of people. It's a, it's a clip that is um, re was recorded on uh, April 25th, 2003, when 20,000 basketball fans all streamed into the Rose Garden Arena for the third game in the first round of the NBA Western Conference playoffs. The home team, Portland, was down 0-2, and then they were getting ready for this game of a best-of-seven series, and the excitement, the tension were high. But the crowd quieted down because it was time to sing the national anthem. And so when this video picks up, a 13-year-old girl is about to step up to the microphone and to sing in front of, of thousands of people in the audience and a lot more at home. Here's what happened. And now to honor America and salute the men and women serving our country with our national anthem, Please welcome, as voted by you, the fans, our winner of the Toyota Get the Feeling of a Star promotion, Natalie Gilbert.
stars light, last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fire, all oh, the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming, and the powerful video. In this video, a white girl loses her way. She's singing a song, an anthem, that's trying to capture the ideal for a nation that's the home of the free. And along the way, she loses her way. And a black man, a coach, he sees what's going on. And here's what he said about that, this in his own words. He said, I saw a little girl in trouble and I went to help her. I'm a father. I got two kids myself. I'd have wanted someone to help them if I could. Well, together, what happens? They find their voice. And did you notice this? Instead of the crowd turning on them as they tried to struggle through this, which happens so much, the crowd cheered them on. Can we do this together? Isn't this what we want? Well, if you want to be part of that, let's unite our voices right now with this song. 